All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the John Q. Public Podcast Show. It is great to have you here today listening. And this is episode number nine, and it's part five of our series on the U.S. Federal Reserve, uh, the Scamorama, as you can see in the title. And through the previous episodes, we've talked about the creation of the Federal Reserve, the passage of the Federal Reserve Act 1913. We have talked about, you know, the mechanisms behind this, how it all kind of works and goes about. We've touched a little bit on, you know, the impacts of inflation and that kind of stuff. And I think that we've got, um, you know, today's episode and one more. And I'll kind of wrap it up in the, the last episode that'll that'll come out, you know, probably a few days after this one. But I want to touch on uh, a couple of things today as we dive maybe a little bit deeper into inflation, uh, the impacts of war, the, you know, the financing aspect, uh, some taxes, and just a little more information on some of the mechanisms here and how, you know, how the function of the Federal Reserve, you know, and fiat currency is, you know, it's not something that's sustainable. Obviously, it's been around for 110 years currently in its current form. I'm going to touch on an example previously because we, as the United States has come along over time, when we look at, you know, like the independence war and stuff, fiat currency has existed for a long, long time. And we're going to look a little bit at that here. And hopefully that'll help people understand that this this is not like a, a new thing. It's something that the United States has struggled with really since the inception because they, for whatever reason, you know, thought it in, you know, the leaders at the time in their infinite wisdom to utilize fiat currency. And so let's look real quick. Let's take a step back in time for, you know, for a few minutes here. So for a long time, well, not a long time, but, you know, I guess in the grand scheme of things, it's not long, but for several years, we had, you know, uh, an economy in the United States as it's coming around, right, 1700s, and tobacco was a big part of that. Um, tobacco quite literally became money and was used, um, you know, gold and silver coin at the time was still, you know, primary currency, but you had tobacco that was a huge form of money. If you remember, we talked about last episode, what is money? Well, money is really anything established for, you know, payment of goods and services. So really any, you know, anything that works. Cigarettes in prison, right? That's a, you know, that's a common thing. So, but 
we jump forward a little bit to the war for independence. And the war for independence brought an immediate halt to utilizing real forms of money. And you got to remember, wars very seldom throughout the course of history would ever be funded out of the existing treasury. And they're not even funded out of an increase in taxes. If that were the case, if we would look at, let's say right now, with the war in Ukraine, and we'd been helping with that by printing <laughs> more Federal Reserve capacity, um, it's not done through taxes. If that were the case, our taxes would be going through the roof. Okay, If, if government assessed tax on citizens to actually fully finance whatever conflict it wants to be involved in, that amount would be so high that even like the diehards who support doing what's happening, uh, they would, you know, they would lose their enthusiasm for that and, and very quickly <laughs> change their mind. So by imitating, or not imitating, artificially increasing the money supply, the real cost of everything gets hidden from the purview of the citizens. It's still paid, right? But it's paid through inflation. Things like the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually didn't reduce inflation, it actually caused more inflation. And that's where you look at the wording behind some of these things, ah, oh, it's fantastic the the government in general not all of them there there are upstanding politicians who are in washington and they understand what's happening but when we look at the government anytime that they want to pass legislation or they want to ask the Federal Reserve for anything or whatever it might be. Any time that new spending happens that is not funded by the tax base, that's new reserves in the Federal Reserve that are established, new money being created, it deflates, or deflates, it inflates things in the economy and devalues our currency. And that's, you know, continuing to go on because we're, you know, we as the United States can't help ourselves but be involved in other people's business. You know, and you can think about several things. But even when it directly impacts us and we, you know, decide to go to war or whatever it is, if you look at where we're at now, over $30 trillion in federal debt, okay, that means that the tax base that we have isn't paying for things. That should be a clear sign. And it's just more and more money being printed, more and more things being created by the Federal Reserve. And it continues to devalue 
the currency. But when you're not tied to, say, a gold standard or something like that, um, you know, there's no incentive to limit it. That's where, like, if we look at, I'm going to use crypto as an example here. Crypto is very volatile, and we've seen how it can be devastating. Now, one of the things about crypto, um, and we let me use uh, we'll use uh, sh uh, Shiba coins as an example, Shiba Inu. So when it's created, they say that there's X amount of these. And the value, sure, can fluctuate a lot as more of that crypto coin are burned, as they call it, or essentially destroyed. It's sent out into the nether, not ever to be, you know, utilized again. So the, the supply shrinks over time. It's actually doing the opposite of Federal Reserve notes. And over time, it will become more valuable. Now here, the biggest problem with crypto is that in order to get it, you've got to use Federal Reserve notes. So it's like this weird, you know, back and forth. So like, let's say that I have a million Shiba Inu crypto. If I hold that for long enough, instead of it being worth, you know, one ten thousandth of a, a cent, a U.S. Federal Reserve cent, right? Eventually, it'll grow in value, and that crypto could be worth, you know, tens of thousands. We saw that with Bitcoin. Now, the problem is, right, there can be significant spikes and drops in the value of that. We've seen that with Bitcoin as a great example. So just something to think about. They're on the right track there, but the problem is the basis with it still to acquire it is Federal Reserve notes. So if it was completely disconnected from the U.S. Federal Reserve system and that was used as actually a form of payment, like there was some other way to get it besides Federal Reserve notes, it probably, much like it used to be with the gold standard, where you've got X amount and that's what it is, it can grow in value and you can have parts and that's the beauty of it with like crypto, right? Is like Shiba Inu coins, crypto, is you can have parts of it in like small, small numbers. And so that it would be really nice if the U.S. Federal Reserve System actually worked in that manner, it could generate more stability. But anyway, back to back to war. So the American Revolution is a really great example. Okay, so we're going we're going back to 1775 here. Just as in again, this is a great example. I think it's a prime example of of what's going on and how the United States, even though a big part of me doesn't think this will happen because I think that the United States is too heavily involved on a global scale, it's entirely possible that the U.S. shoots itself in the foot and devalues its currency enough that the U.S. doesn't then maintain its status as the world reserve, and you see somebody like China potentially step in and take over. But anyway, so let's look at this for a minute. So the American Revolution, right? The In order to foot the bill for independence, independence that we were going for okay the confederation and the individual states went to 
printing money. They went into the printing business. Okay. And you got to remember, Ben Franklin, prior to this, was a huge advocate for this. He started to use his own printing press to, you know, kind of like, you know, try things out and, and all that. And it's going to come, he's going to realize at the end of this that it wasn't, wasn't worth fighting about and i would say the same thing about daylight savings time i don't know why ben franklin had to fight for that but anyway so at the beginning of the war 1775 okay the total money supply was about 12 million dollars and i forget what the notes were called at the time okay so in june 1775 continental congress issued another two million dollars to be printed okay before those notes even got into circulation they authorized another approximately one million in a very short period of time by the end of the year another three million so you've already by 50 percent in the course of one calendar year increased your your supply of currency so a year later 1776 another 19 million 77 another 13 million 1778 another 64 million and remember this is 250 years ago 1779 125 million the continental army in its infinite wisdom issued its own certificates for purchasing supplies totaling about $200 million. In total, about $425 million in a five-year period, on top of the $12 million that was already in existence, increase of supply 3,500%. And then, right, in addition to this huge expansion of the money supply via the central government, the individual states were doing the same thing. And when you look at it all together, between 1775 and the end of 1779, total money supply expanded roughly 5,000%. The amount raised in taxes in that same period only a few million dollars. I mean, less than a percent of everything that was printed. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, you you send that money out, right? Looks prosperous, right? Looks prosperous. Quickly followed by inflation. <laughs> Self-destruction is inevitable. In 1775, you had these, uh, oh, Continentals, that's what they were called. So paper Continentals were traded for uh, $1 in gold. Two years later, 1777, they were exchanged for 25 cents. And by 1779, you know, just under five years from when they were issued, they were worth less than a penny. And this is where you get the phrase, not worth a continental. You would spend 
$5,000 for, you know, a pair of pants. Like, think, think about that. And George Washington, and this is, this is a great quote. So George Washington, then after, like, after this is all said and done, he says, a wagon load of money will scarcely purchase a wagon load of provisions. And Benjamin Franklin starts to see what's going on here. Okay. And he he wrote at the time, this currency, as we manage it, is a wonderful machine. It performs its office when we issue it. It pays and clothes the troops, provides victuals and ammunition. And when we are obliged to issue a quantity excessive, it pays itself off by depreciation. And I, th- I think one of the things here too, and like you can look at like Rand Paul is is a he's said this a lot, and you know it's one of the things that it's really the the statement is like so deficit spending is what it is because you're you know you don't have a means to to pay for it it's just a deficit so the the statement then being that we are we're saddling future generations with the bill for what we enjoy today okay so why not just let those in the future help pay for what benefits them also right as we make changes or whatever it might be but it's kind of like deceptive in a way and it's like it's political, you know, gobbledygook. When money is fiat, right? Fake, fagazi. Like, as you know, the the colonists experienced. Right. Every government building, um, public works a war it's paid out of current labor and current wealth these you know the all this stuff has to be built today with today's labor the person who does the work has to be paid today and yeah the the interest payments yeah, you know, in part, they'll fall to future generations. But the initial cost, it's paid by those in the present. And it is paid by loss of value in the monetary unit and loss of purchasing power for wages. And this fiat money it's, it is the means, it's the vehicle by which governments obtain instant purchasing power without taxation. So the question is then, well, where does the purchasing power come from? Because the this fiat has no, it's got no value to it. Nothing to offset the, you know, government purchasing power through fiat it's only obtained 
by subtracting it from somewhere else, right? It is, in fact, it's collected from all of us, the taxpaying citizens, through a decline in our purchasing power. It's the exact same thing as a tax. But again, it's hidden from view. It's silence in the background, right? And nobody understands, right? Nobody thinks about this. And Thomas Jefferson, who was brilliant in a lot of different ways. We're going to go back to um, 1786, Thomas Jefferson. And he provides a really great breakdown of this. And it goes as, uh, as follows here. Everyone through whose hands a bill passed lost on that bill what it lost in value during the time it was in his hands. This was a real tax on him. And in this way, the people of the United States actually contributed those millions of dollars during the war. And by a mode of taxation, the most oppressive of all, because the most unequal of all. So, with the colonies then, right, prices skyrocket. And we've experienced a taste of that the last couple of years. Here we are in 2023, right? Between 2020, this time in 2020, versus where we are three years later, post all the COVID stuff, right? So as prices are skyrocketing, right, colonies had to put in some wage and price controls. You know, you're you're trying to, you know, plug the, the hole in the side of the boat to keep water from getting in. It's kind of the reverse there, right? So they, you know, they couldn't get any control on it. So then they've got, you know, laws that they put in place on, on the tender. And they even had laws that went so far as to, you know, look at things like treasonous activities. Um, something to the effect of like, if any person shall hereafter be so lost to all virtue and regard for his country as to refuse to receive said bills in payment, he shall be deemed, published, and treated as an enemy in this country and precluded from all trade or intercourse with the inhabitants of these colonies. And so economic chaos, right? Absolute destruction. But we can learn, you know, you would think that we would learn lessons from this. Right? And what's the lesson? Well, the lesson is fiat money is paper money without any precious metal backing and which people, the citizens, anybody wanting to do commerce, 
is required by law to accept. It allows the government to increase spending without raising taxes, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Fiat is, is the cause of inflation. And it's what causes people to lose purchasing power. Right? The increase is the exact amount of the devaluation of the money in, you know, that we have access to and that we can use for spending. Inflation, it's, it's a hidden tax. And it is the most unfair because it falls most heavily on those who are least able to to buy things, right? This would be the people with the smallest wages and those on fixed incomes. But it's also going to punish people who are, um, you know, holding on to money. It erodes the value of their savings. And again, that's why I reference Robert Kiyosaki who had said it really well. He said, you know, why why would I keep money in the bank if they can print more money? It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, the the natural order then would dictate that, in, that any country who resorts to the use of fiat has essentially doomed itself to economic hardship, and political strife. And it is absolutely incredible how how this has developed over time, right? And we find ourselves in this really weird situation. And, you know, you have all of these situations where through the course of history, we deal with, you know, you know, these issues and these things that pop up and it's completely avoidable. But the problem is that, you know, you had this handful of men, these these seven seven original players in the creation of this game, you know, that thought this would be a great idea. And it was solely benefiting themselves. And we as the you know, the people of the United States were just told this is how it's gonna be. And you know, we find ourselves today, here we are in 2023, and I was reading just yesterday, so the Silicon Valley Bank was uh, was closed. And it became to, or let's see here, uh, as of December 31st, 2022, Silicon Valley Bank had approximately 209 billion in total assets 
and about 175 billion in total deposits. At, at the time of closing, the amount of deposits in excess of the insurance limits was undetermined. The amount of uninsured deposits will be determined once the FDIC obtains additional information from the bank and the customers. Yes, the, the FDIC will make right up to its thresholds deposits people might have had in there. But the, the this is a great example of a bank being too risky with its lending. It was heavily involved in tech sector and crypto. If we look at tech sector, the volatility there. And when you get to a point where the, the lending is too excessive and too risky, and you walk too close to that edge with the margin, you're going to have to close your doors. And that's the biggest issue with fractional reserve banking, that banks can lend out substantial portions of the money that is, you know, via their account holders, right? So if I've got $5,000 in my checking and $5,000 in my savings account, right, the, the the amount that's in my savings account for sure you can you can no pun intended take it to the bank that you know the bank that I have that with in all likelihood is lending out significantly more against what I have in there because they're playing the odds that I'm not going to go in there on a day well if it's just me that's fine but that not a whole bunch of people all at once are going to go in and ask for that money back. You know, in the, in the beginning, banks served as a storehouse for the safekeeping of coins. The bank would issue a paper receipt for the coins. And they converted that commodity money into receipt money. Right? And it didn't alter the money supply. People had a choice, right? They could either use their, they could either use coin or paper, but not both, right? If they use coin, right, that receipt was never used. If they use the receipt, the coin remained in the vault and did not circulate. It's kind of, you know, kind of like if I had to go get something and let's say, you know, there's a thousand bucks in my savings account, I've got a receipt for it. And essentially that receipt, then I would give that to somebody else. They could go use that at the bank because you got to remember before photo ID and a lot of the different security features that we have now, things actually worked better, which is, you know, funny. So when banks gave up this practice and began to issue receipts to borrowers, <laughs> then the magic happens. It's not quite true that they created money out of nothing, but the, what they did was they created money out of debt. 
it's a lot easier for people to go into debt than it is to mine gold or silver. But the problem is money's no longer limited by the natural way, the natural order of supply and demand. And from that point, history was changed forever going forward. And things were only limited by the degree to which bankers have been able to squash the gold reserve fraction of deposits. Right. It was this huge transition from receipt money to fiat money. And it's been disastrous. And so, you know, it's, you know, fiat money being paper without any kind of, you know, commodity backing precious metals you know, and then forcing people to require it by law. And it all started in colonial America. Uh, you know, the really funny thing is, though, like, it was a disastrous experiment. Huge unemployment. Loss of property. Political issues, etc. And... You know, then you have the Revolutionary War, right? Brought fiat money back <laughs> with a huge issue, right? Economic chaos. And it's just a disaster. So I hope that, you know, today's episode kind of, you know, really helps to, you know, paint you know, more of a picture of how, you know, how, how things are going and how we have, you know, how we have hurt ourselves over time. And, you know, we look at a lot of times through history, how we repeat history, and we are, you know, we're, we're doing that right now to ourselves, and it's this, you know, it's this, it's, it's a globalist mentality, and like, you'll hear, you'll hear people talk about it, but it very much is, the the new world order type of thing, right? Decline of American prosperity, increase in the size of government, decrease our personal freedom, uh, growth of taxes. And you have to remember, politicians might talk about, you know, we need to increase taxes on the wealthiest and it it doesn't work in in that manner because you have to remember if you're increasing things at the top it's going to impact everything below it 
there's this equilibrium that that has to happen. And the 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 point that I would try to to drill home here at the end of this episode is that the the utilization of a currency that doesn't have any limiting factors to it causes both immediate and long-term health issues for the economy because you have to look at it like there's only so much taxation that can occur. There's only so much. You can only tax so much of the dollars that people have and or earn. And in theory, you know, in the natural order of things, it should be enough. Like, you know, a standard taxation percentage. But when we get to this point where, through different mechanisms of government, people's money is taxed, you know, upwards of 30-40% through not just regular taxes, but devaluation of currency, we find ourselves in a situation where we are today, where they're going to go to whatever avenue is necessary to buy groceries or to pay bills or to still try to live life, right? The only way to reverse this is to have leadership in government who is willing to think of the long game here. And the long game here is to actually operate within the appropriate fiscal means, not to continue to increase federal spending and to look at like what's truly necessary. And I, I, I'll go back to, I think a great example is Davy Crockett from years and years ago uh, when he was serving in government. And you look this up. And actually, Rand Paul brought this up a while ago. And it might be pertaining to the war in Ukraine. But Davy Crockett gave a speech. And it was pertaining to how there was this fire. I don't know if it was Philadelphia or Pittsburgh or something like that at the time. And it was, you know, the government was talking about, you know, providing financial support for the people of that area, which, you know, that's a noble thought process, I think. But again, this all stems to, you know, government spending here and particularly this day and age. So Davy Crockett's argument was that although, yes, our hearts go out to these people, it's unfair to forcibly place upon the citizens of the country the expense that's involved there. Basically getting at the the local community should be able to step in and help, you know, states, local government, etc. 
It should not be on the federal government. And with as hard as it is to look at something like the conflict in, in Ukraine, okay, I think that, sure, it's probably agreeable that what's going on there and how it's going on, it's not the right thing to be happening. You know, how Vladimir Putin is going about his business, it's not the right thing. Um, you know, there's different ways to go about things, of course, but I don't want to get into too much of that right now. But the point remains that the, the argument to be made is that although it is terrible what's what's happening there, we actually don't have the money as a country from a federal level to be able to send, you know, 500 million or billions or whatever it is, let alone $1, because we don't actually have it. So the federal government goes and passes legislation to say we need to send money to, you know, to X, Y, and Z. And it generates the creation of more currency and, and off you go. And it, it's hard to look at it from, you know, a common man's perspective and say that the spending is is okay. There are far worse things and far more frivolous things that we have created federal reserve notes to finance than trying to help Ukraine maintain its independence. We can all agree upon that. But at the same time, the U.S. again finds itself in a position of, you know, creating federal reserve notes, creating money, spending that doesn't exist there. And there's no reason to there's no reason to not do it i think is the you know the big point there so i hope this episode kind of kind of opened opened up some things a little bit um we're going to have one more episode and i'm going to kind of kind of close things off uh, a little bit talk about some of the the mechanisms that will affect the future, how we go forward from here, um, you know, and look at some of that. And so anyway, thanks for, thanks for listening to another episode of the John Q public podcast show. We'll catch you on the next episode. Have a good day and we will talk to you later. Thanks. Bye-bye.